Welcome to Talk About. On Talk About, our goal is to sit down with open-minded people for open and honest discussion. No judgment, no hidden agenda, just getting the conversation started. This week we're joined by Duncan McConnell. Duncan is not only a clinical manager in the paramedical field, he's also part of a team of specialists working with governments around the world to bring transformational change to the field. Listen in as we discuss some of the training and work that has already been implemented in various countries such as Australia, Mongolia, the Maldives, and more. Sit back and enjoy the show. Grab our drinks there and we'll get a virtual cheers going to uh, get the festivity started. Cheers, Duncan. We did clarify that uh, although that is a wine glass, it's it's lemonade. I mean, <laughs> let's be real here. So we're <laughs> so we're uh, five uh, five o'clock Eastern Standard Time here in Toronto, but uh, you are not in Toronto. You are a far ways away from Toronto. You're in Australia. So it's uh, what time yes. now? At six thirty in the morning here tomorrow. Six thirty in the Thursday morning. Oh yeah, in the Thursday morning. Yes. Oh, Welcome to goodness. the future. <laughs> I mean, this tomorrow, is, it'll still be there. Yeah, absolutely. And this is at the point where most people would be gathering intel, like, you know, what sporting event is, is, has already taken place that we can kind of wager on what are the lottery numbers, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it all before, but uh, anything that you can pass along my way that I can kind of use, just, uh, just give me a little wink. Yeah, no worries. We'll do. <laughs> yeah. We'll just share the profits. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's all above board, my friend. <laughs> yeah. No brown well, paper bags in this conversation. Yeah, exactly. Like, listen, I'm not here to, to take all the riches for myself. I have no problems with sharing with those who help me get there. <laughs> so listen, Duncan, uh, thank you very much for, for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to sit down with me and, and chat. We're going to get into uh, talking about the paramedics field. You are in paramedicine in Australia, but you're you're doing so many things. And, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, a relative of ours and she had mm-hmm. said, you were doing these tremendous things. You were doing webinars and you were training people and, and all of this amazing stuff. And I was like, okay. She's like, you have to sit down and talk to them. So, okay, no problem. <laughs> I started looking into you and I was like, yeah, this guy is into a lot of different things. I, I jumped on to uh, duncanmcconnell.com and mm-hmm. uh, started reading into all the things that you're doing. And, and this is where I want to start because I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read right from the web page here the about us and and then we're gonna mm-hmm. dive into some of this uh, this stuff and you can explain to me how one person can do all of these things okay because that's that's one of the things that I marvel <laughs> at uh, so you've got here change management innovation e learning web development paramedical and first aid education managerial education development pathways for small medium and large organizations as well as providing musical entertainment solutions for your next party function or gathering. And that last part is where I want to start. Everyone has to have a hobby. (laughs) So, yeah. So tell me how this all comes together. You have all of this education and learning and medicine, and then you have, you have music in there. So let's start there. What, what's the deal? You say everyone's got to have a hobby. Is this a hobby of yours that you have integrated into your, into your business model? Not so much integrated into the business model, um, but a few years ago, there's there's definitely two digits, and at least a two or a three incorporated into that into that amount. Um, growing up, very musical family, um, and started doing sort of professional mus- uh, musician type work from mid teens, I guess, mid teens to late teens, 
and uh, it was sort of something I always really enjoyed doing, sort of escape into the moment of the music sort of type of thing. Um, did a lot of tribute um, artist work, so I performed as in roles um, like Eddie Cochran that I did in the class of 59, um, which was great. Um, working on a stage with seven other amazing musicians who were also doing tribute artist work at the same time. So I think we had a the best Australian Buddy Holly um, tribute artist on stage. We had a Johnny Cash who, if you if you closed your eyes, you swear you were listening to the real Johnny Cash. He was amazing. Um, we had a guy that was doing the Big Bopper. We had Jerry Lee Lewis, Bill Haley. I'm sure I've forgotten someone. But yeah, we all we all got together and did a, a big show, um, toured all around Australia. Um, and some of them went on to do some cruise boat stuff as well. And yeah, I mean, that, that's the type of stuff. You just sort of, it's, it's a nice escape from from the medicine side of stuff. I mean, paramedicine can be a bit of a confronting um, career. Uh, over the years and it's sort of it's nice to see um it's nice to have that breakaway um or separation from from that where you can just go somewhere else and just do something completely different and just enjoy yourself and yeah i just just love doing it over the years that's amazing i have seen some tribute bands and uh, i was quickly schooled on the difference between a cover band and a tribute band and how a cover band will just do music from different bands, but a tribute is is more integrated, isn't it? It's it's way more mm. involved and in really embodying the acts that that you're emulating. Yeah. Paramedicine, um, paramedics work, any anything in the medical field. I've talked to some paramedics over the years, and it's not the it's not roses all the time. I mean, you're you're <laughs> meeting people in some of their worst moments ever. So to, to build in those escapes is, is brilliant. I mean, you, is that something that, is that something that you made a conscious effort of, or was that something that was kind of learned, like taught to you that, Hey, Duncan, you're going to get into this field. You've got to, you've got to find some ways to kind of ground yourself in, in other areas. Kind of fell into ambulance and paramedicine by accident. If I was honest, um, my, my original love through high school, um, was aviation. Um, and like most teenage boys, you're, you're a little bit lazy in your, in your senior years at, at, at high school. Um, so I didn't get the marks and results I really wanted to get. Uh, so I um, went into, this is, they don't run this anymore, but uh, the Australian Army had a ready reserve um, army scheme. And I went into the ready reserve component. And that's where you study and you work in the military at the same time. So I built up my grades, uh, went in and went through my um, aviation selection course. Um, and during um, an aspect of that, I did some very, very serious damage to my knee and broke three out of the four ligaments that was in my knee. Um, so I became no longer fit for airworthy frontline service. Uh, and while I was doing the ready reserve type of stuff, my um, grandfather, he was um, part of the mobile field ambulance in World War II over in PNG and places like that. Uh, and I um, stuck my hand up and sort of did some medic work just to keep myself occupied. Uh, just try different things when you when you try different musterings and that. And part of that was you had to do some honorary ambulance or volunteer work uh, with the state ambulance service at that time. That was Queensland Ambulance Service. That was in the mid 90s. And when they found out that I'd completely busted my knee and was no longer able to go in the direction, career direction I wanted to go in, one of the, the educators at the time said, hey, do you want to, um, do you want to join the ambulance service and, and come in and be an ambulance officer? So then you've already done like a half of the initial training as part of the work you're doing with the military. And I went, that sounds like a good idea. I'm not working at the moment. Why not? And, and I've been there ever since. And that was like 1997. So um, yeah, it's, and it's just evolved from that. And if you asked me in the late 90s, like where would I be in 20, 25 years? Some of the places that we'll probably talk about later on, some I wouldn't even know where they were. And I would have laughed at you as well. 
it's amazing how um, your career choices can take you in, in many different directions. And it hasn't always been roses, the career. Um, there's been some trips and some things you sort of stand back and go, really, um, is that worth it? But some of those trips and stumbles leads to other directions that you go, well, actually, if I didn't have that triple stumble, I, was, I probably wouldn't have ever ended up in that other pathway or that other opportunity. So, yeah, it's been, a, um, been an interesting, interesting collection of events. Really remarkable way that happens sometimes. I mean, there there's just no way of telling what the future will be. Best laid plans. I, you mm. have you have no clue where you want to be, but you have this idea. And I didn't know you obviously back then, but to see all the things that you've been doing so far and the things that you plan on doing in the future, I would have thought this was a field that you would have wanted to go in the entire time because you have really jumped into this field. Uh, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because in our pre-conversation, you were talking about reforming different things, education, working with different governments of different countries, and really, you know, developing this field of paramedicine. Now, I had to look into exactly what paramedicine was. When you said it to me initially, I was like, is that the same as a paramedic? But it's a little deeper than that, isn't it? Can you, can you explain a little bit what paramedicine is? Well, if we sort of take it right back to its sort of inception, um, I mean, you can go all the way back to the Napoleonic Wars, really, um, with uh, Napoleon's chief surgeon who sort of introduced the levels of what we refer to now as sort of pre-hospital response or ambulance or paramedicine. And it's kind of evolved since then, but it really took on its own when you had champions like Nancy Caroline back in the late 70s really start to establish the education pathway. Um, and then you had um, the growth uh, throughout the US and other countries around the world where people started to take on that and look at it and go from there. Um, and then you have the evolutions that have been added into it with things such as like the Korean War. Um, if you look at MASH and the opening scene of MASH where you see the helicopters come in with the, with the people on the side being dropped off at the hospital. And then that evolved into the retrieval process that you, you, you see in the classic, like China Beach, for example, those classic scenes in the hospital and retrieval system in there from the Vietnam War. Um, and you, and you, you look at the taking the hospital to the patient or aspects of the emergency room to the patient and through education and through some amazing healthcare leaders along the way, it's evolved into what we see today. Um, and it, it, it's gone from just a car with some lights sitting on the roof and a stretcher on the back and a person with a first aid kit, picking someone off the side of the side of the road or from someone's house, putting them in a stretcher and driving them to the hospital to some really amazing levels of treatment that is actually provided to you. I mean, let's take Canada, for example. Uh, you've got your, your EMRs, your emergency responders, which are kind of like your first responders with a, a decent amount of training to start with. And then they sort of, they're supported by primary care paramedics. And I know that's your that's your, your big base of paramedic response um, within Canada. And then from there, you've got your advanced care paramedics that take to that next level. And then you've got your critical care um, paramedics, which are normally the ones that come out to you on your on your planes or your helicopters. And then there's even that specialised area within that critical care response um, where they've got neonatal retrieval paramedics that go out and retrieve all these little children. And then merged into that, and this is a direction I'm super passionate about, is the new community um, paramedic model, which is where it takes the traditional model and turns it upside down. Um, and it really tries to enhance that holistic delivery of healthcare to the community. So not everyone goes to hospital. There's fall assessments. There could be mental health related assessments, palliative care, 
assessments and treatment within the home so that patient doesn't actually have to go to a healthcare facility all the time. They can have the treatment um, done there in the hospital, in their own home instead of the hospital. And then you add the telemedicine components into that as well so that the paramedic's not working in isolation. Um, and then it doesn't matter sort of what level of paramedic it is. It could be a PCP or an ACP working as a community paramedic, but they've got that capability to um, connect via telemedicine in various ways um, to help enhance that overall healthcare delivery process. Uh, and that's just sort of the evolution and direction it's it's sort of going in. So paramedicine is it's really a um, massive key part of the healthcare system. And like some of the things that we discussed um, previously was some of the research that I'm doing in the EMS or the paramedic or ambulance delivery, depending which terminology you want to use. It's a key component of any nascent healthcare system. And in many of these developing nations that I've been working with, emergency medicine isn't even a field over there. So they've got a hospital and that's it. Um, and they don't have specialized emergency um, doctors that work in the emergency department. Like it's, so it's bigger than this one group, bigger than just a single healthcare system. It really is the expansion of um, alternate pathways, emergency response, um, working in, in connection with your emergency departments, um, your aeromedical retrieval services, every country's got their own different versions of that. But at the end of the day, they all sort of do the same sort of concept and role. Yeah, the advancement of paramedicine um, around the world today will really help transform the way in which we deliver that initial part of patient care um, to our patients. And maybe some will end up in a hospital, maybe some will go down that alternate pathway. Um, but at the end of the day, you're providing that patient-centred care for that particular patient every time. And that's what sort of paramedicine sort of really sort of means to me. Um, and if just listening to some of the webinars about developments and innovation, you'd, you'd probably start to pick up some of that from many different people that are out there trying to um, really push um, the evolution and development of this. Because you think about it, we're still in an infancy because realistically 1970 is where you sort of really draw the line on where the evolution of it really began. And it's it's now 2022. I mean, that's like 52 years ago. That's, that's nothing. Nurses have been around for a few hundred years with their profession and look how much it's evolved. Doctors have been around for hundreds of years as well. And look at the different levels of specialties and things like that, that that field has. And then let's talk about all our other allied health connections such as physio, mental health and OT. I mean, everything is starting to evolve. And the more we start to work in a more collaborative and holistic way, the better the overall healthcare delivery can be, not only within the community, but for the overall healthcare system and ultimately every patient you see. It really seems like we're at a stage right now where the holistic view is coming back into focus, especially here in North America. Uh, you had mentioned that people that might have mental illnesses that back in, you know, 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they would have just been hospitalized. We actually were just doing a bike ride around our area and we biked mm -hmm. uh, past the uh, institution here in Whippy, uh, Whippy Shores. And, you know, we were just discussing how, you know, you have any anywhere from um, probably some prisoners that are in there that are being treated for different things, people with different varying uh, degrees of mental health issues. And to think that that can be a normal part of just being addressed right on the spot by an EMT or an ambulance is, it seems like the natural next step, but that also seems daunting when, when you're talking about this and you're talking about bringing it all together. Um, I'm thinking to myself, how do we do that? How, how is it even possible to have that many people driving around and, and being 
you know, at their ready to be able to take care of any situation possible. And one of the solutions that you're working on right now is education. Education's got to be the foundation of all of this. So talk, talk through a little bit of the education aspects that you're starting to bring to the, to the, the individuals that you're training and how you're trying to get this out to, you know, the whole world. It's not just Australia. You've been working in some mm. different countries, but you're also doing a lot of webinars, which gives, you know, that technology angle that you can, you can really approach anybody. So this has got to be one of the biggest things, right, Duncan? Yeah, well, I mean, let's jump back to where you were before with your bike ride with the mental health facility. I mean, that's a great example of advancements of where paramedicine has gone in the management and treatment of patients. Because, yeah, you're right back. Back in the day, it probably would have been someone that turns up all in white coats that puts you in a jacket that has your arms tied up and then you're filled full of medicine and you're taken away and people forget about it. Like it was a really frowned upon, you didn't say the word mental health or, or anything like, because it was really people like, well, well that, that, this had that, it just had that connotation to it. And if you look at the way that has evolved um, around the world today, um, it really has become a, a key part of primary healthcare delivery. And if we look at it from an emergency perspective, here in Australia, there's some great models in the UK. There's some awesome models in the US and in Canada as well, sort of in that mobile integrated healthcare direction where we send the right group of trained and educated individuals out to manage or work, so manage, let's say work with these patients or consumers, um, depending on what you what the focus is because you take take away the word patient because it can people can sort of think oh they're sick when that's so they use the word consumer a lot in that so it it has a less sort of tagged kind of opinion to it so you have things like uh, mental health response teams and sometimes like for myself I've worked in these and it can it's the ones I've worked in have been just a paramedic and a mental health nurse that's connected with the mental health unit within the local hospital and health system and you work as a combined team. So the paramedic brings to the table all the pre-hospital and emergency type skills if required, but they've also had some training in, in mental health education and, and patient care delivery. However, the mental health nurse, that's their specialty. They bring that next level of mental health assessment and other techniques and you actually end up learning off each other quite well. Like I've learned a lot from the people I've worked with, they've learned from me and egos are left at the car park when you get to work and you just come together and work as one. I mean, so that's that's a model. The other model that is around is the paramedic, mental health nurse and a police officer. And we're not in marked vehicles either because that brings another level of stigma and things attached to it. So we turn up in a fairly um, discreet looking unmarked vehicle. There might be like a sticker somewhere, but it'd be, it'd be tiny. It won't be all the livery or livery that you see normally on an emergency vehicle. And sometimes we're all in fairly nondescript um, clothing. So instead of having lots of badges and ranks and things like that, we might have polo shirts and one might represent the ambulance service, one might represent the health service and one might represent the police service. It's, it's clear that we are who we are, but we're not having those. Because again, that helps bring calmness to the situation and things like that. Um, and then often what these kind of mobile integrated health teams have actually done or these mental health co-response teams has done is that whereas if we take a step back 10 years ago maybe those per people would have been um, given some kind of pharmacology based restraint or maybe they would have been physically restrained and hauled away then put in that special room until they calmed down and all that then it could be quite traumatic i mean you're giving pharmacological restraints or any physical restraint could be quite 
quite traumatic to the patient. Where with this approach, we're talking about the care and communication. Uh, we're talking about trying to get to their level and, and trying to bring that way, that de-escalation, that verbal um, communication technique back into the picture to identify that you're actually there for them. Um, you are genuinely here to help. Um, and we, we want to know what's wrong so we can offer our assistance. And let's say nine times out of 10, generally that approach works quite well. And sometimes these patients can be left at home. Sometimes they can be referred to another uh, specialty or, or person, or maybe we make an appointment with their specialist, but they don't need to be carted away. Uh, and sometimes they go, well, actually, I think I do need to go in and speak with a psychologist or speak with someone else and we can put them in the car and we can we can drive there just like you're getting in an uber or a taxi and we can deliver them they're not being driven in by an ambulance they're not being laying down on a stretcher but when it gets to the other extreme when we can't manage it then we start to go down some other pathways where we might use pharmacological agents to help sort of settle in and calm these patients down and again that can be quite a traumatic experience too so it's then sort of stepped into the direction that, okay, if we have to go down that pathway, then we've trained our police officers, we've trained our paramedics on the correct way to hold the patient so we can deliver what needs to be given. And then, okay, we're going to monitor and watch them all the way through to hospital. And instead of it being a, just let's grab and hold, it's okay, we do it this way. We're, everyone, it's, it's a plan is set up. Everyone knows their role. Everyone knows what's going to happen. There's other things put in place in case this goes wrong or in case that goes wrong. Like everyone can just do it without thinking. But looking at the responses that we have to these cases now, where it used to be quite a high physical response to these patients, it's now a more tactile, a more communicative style response. And the level of train or the amount of transports that used to be done has dropped dramatically. If you look at any of these places that have got this model in place and it, it's such a benefit to those patients, it, it, it gives them a bit more humanity. It keeps them with their community, keeps them with their family, which, and that sort of comes back to some of that other areas I spoke about earlier with the community parameters and the, and the palliative care models and things like that. Like it keeps them this kind of mobile integrated healthcare or specialty response keeps the patients where they need to be as opposed to carting everyone off to the hospital. And, and you're right, education plays a key part in that and delivering mental health education to new paramedic students at university. When I used to get them, they'd already done two years of really intense patient assessment, um, patient management. I think the group came in with just finishing off on trauma and cardiac or respiratory. So a lot of tools, a lot of assessments, a lot of keeps your hands active, a lot of really sexy stuff that you get to use, like drills that can go into bones to give medication and all that type of stuff. And then they come to me with with mental health and I literally make them put their hands in their pockets and talk to someone. And that first couple of weeks of the course, it's I, I think the longest anyone's lasted is probably maybe five minutes because they're so used to just putting their hands on a patient and doing something that when you physically make them talk to the patient, it's like, oh, what do I do? Like, this isn't, it's a complete mindset change. And that's only teaching them a little bit. So you talk about these specialized people that go into mental health co-response, their level of training is a whole nother level again, but just remember, just educating people that there's actually a person behind that patient. Um, and these are the ways in which we can communicate with them to achieve our outcome. That's, that's a big step. Um, and that's probably been yeah, the evolution of education and how we prepare people um, to work in this paramedic environment. It, it has changed so much over the years. And it's not been done solely on our own. It's so like we look at 
best practice that other areas of health have done and we look at what they're doing and can we contextualize it and adapt it to what we're doing and it's really great when you're able to work with those specialties to come in and help us evolve our own patient care standards in that space. Um, obstetrics is a great example where I used to get midwives to come in and help with the course development and course delivery. Yes, our delivery is outside the hospital. So it provides a whole other level of risk, a level that's not part of their normal day to day. So they learn about that aspect from us. But we learn so much more from them because of their sheer skills and abilities um, in that specialty. So it is a... It's an amazing way to um, educate and develop the next generation of healthcare personnel throughout paramedicine and throughout midwifery and medicine and nursing. It's very cool because what you're talking about and what I'm hearing a lot, and this is one of the things that stood out to me when we talked previously, was the alternative care aspects of it and having the ego checked at the door. You're, you're talking a lot of new age language that wouldn't have been around in the 70s or 80s and before no. that, right? Like, and, and so that's that's something that's really fascinating to me because we have learned a lot more. I was at a seminar where they were talking about long-term care homes and there was actually a, an individual from the UK who was coming and working with uh, homes here in Canada to change things up. And the reason I bring this up is because you brought up something important, I think, which was the uniforms. Uh, mm-hmm. What his business model or what his model of care was for long-term care was get rid of the uniforms from the nurses, get rid of the restraints for, for the patients and treat them like human beings. And as he's talking about this, I was like, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You're, you're dealing with people at this, in, in some of these instances with Alzheimer's and dementia and, you know, a lot of, you know, advanced deterioration of brain. And if you hmm. put them in situations that I'm sure that you would need to use restraints at certain points in time or some kind of a approach that way, but his whole business model was, you know, let's get rid of treating these people like they are patients. They are people and let's treat them as such. The The thing that I've, I was feeling a lot of the times, which is something I want to ask you is this takes a lot of patience from the, the practitioners like yourselves to, to be able to go mm-hmm. into these situations and take a beat, especially if it's a, somebody calling you as an emergency type situation. How do you stop the people that you're training from becoming jaded and, and get them to take that beat and say, like, these are individuals, this could be your mom, this could be your uncle, and, and treat them as such like that, because to me, that's a mindset, a mindset shift as well. Yeah, it's, it's something you, you can't really teach. Um, it's something you need to sort of show it's, it's something you need to allow the individual to develop themselves, you can demonstrate or show many examples. And even without showing them. Uh, it, it's interesting, you take students that you've had from a university, because uh, we, we do university-based entry to practice here in Australia. And I think it would be the same for the college approach that is done in, in Canada and in the US, in that you could take, let's say you have them with you for a full year or six months, and then you put them out on the road to do a their first clinical placement. Now you can see the change in attitudes and opinions on them when they come back. So you can demonstrate all these positive um, things that you've just said. You can give them plenty of examples and you can see the potential change that occurs in not all, but some individuals when they come back because they've been, they've worked with two people for like six weeks, for example, who might be jaded, burnt out, 
or whatever. And they, they actually bring that back into the classroom with them because that's their introduction to the, to the service. Um, so therefore that's, that's what they think it's all right. But then you'll have others that will come back or have two absolutely amazing individuals and some could be new practitioners or some could be 20 or 30 years plus, but they've got that established um, process and mindset that you've just discussed and they bring that back in. And it's interesting to see the two types communicate and talk with each other um, about their experiences. It's interesting to sit down and have that conversation. For me, it was very important university students to really identify to them from the start that this isn't your normal nine to five job. Um, these are the type of things you're going to see because back when I started, you generally had to come in with a trade or some other kind of background um, that you were early to mid twenties, um, kind of like the police was sort of like that as well. But then over the years, it's with that degree entry to practice, you're getting 16 and 17 year olds coming into university and learning how to be paramedics and then going out and being a, a a third in a vehicle being exposed to things that they've never seen before or only seen from a Hollywood perspective or on TV. And it can be quite shocking for them. So it's, I've always ensured that prior to all of this proper um, peer support type trained individuals come and speak with them and really give them an overview that it's okay not to be okay and, and, and prepare them as much as we can for the type of things they're going to encounter. Um, even to the point with the degree that I set up in Griffith University back in 2014, I remember explaining to the much more knowledgeable people with me or the professors and all that type of stuff as we're trying to get the program pushed through and stuff like that. Um, and I mean, there was probably 15 very, very smart people in that room, all wanting answers regarding this program and why am I doing this and why am I doing that? And when it came to this particular aspect, they wanted me to explain why we should grant a special entry um, or transition process for students that decide that this program's not for me. Um, and I said, well, there is a caveat. We won't grant them special entry in the medicine or dentistry. They can apply for that like everyone else does. However, I think, because these are very smart, because the level of entry we had for this program was in that sort of top 5% of students. So it was quite, because we wanted to keep the numbers down. So the, the best, instead of having like a big, 100 plus students we had 40 to 50 so the only way to do that was sort of bring the entry numbers to a point where you can help funnel in that direction so so we've got very smart students to start with um, we've got very young students and some of them they may decide that this is not for them so we need to give them an alternate direction if they choose to do that and they said well you need to justify why so i had i think six slides in total of various stages of incidents that, that um, I had access to and that I was allowed to share. And I think I got to flicking to slide three, continue, and as I was talking, I was just making these slides progress and the entire room just said, no, that's enough, you could stop now. So they started to get sort of um, the type of things I was referring to and why it would be um, vital to do that. And, and since its inception um, in those first three years, um, so before 2020, I think we probably had six students decide that this wasn't for them. Uh, and then we had some other students that got into medicine. So they just went off into medicine. It's better they find out early in their career that this isn't the right career pathway for them, for them to go through a whole university bachelor and go, oh, what have I done for the past four years? This wasn't the right thing. And then they have to go back and start again. So yeah, it, it is something you, you can't really teach, but you can inspire. And I guess you sort of teach in that way too. 
and it's something someone really develops. And those that are really akin for the job um, can really do it well. But also getting them, if they're starting to feel that disconnection or that warmth, getting them to know that that's the time to actually talk to others about it to see whether there could be like an alternate direction they could go to, maybe education, management, an alternate career, work within the hospital health system as opposed to working in the outer hospital direction. So yeah, it, providing them the pathways of support that they need um, if required. I know that's sort of a roundabout way of answering your question, but it is something that makes healthcare workers what they are and deliver the really gold standard of care that they can deliver. I think it's also what I'm hearing is there's a component of keeping these brilliant minds within your field. I mean, even if it's mm. an arm's reach, reach from exactly what you're doing, you would rather be working in, in conjunction with them than losing them completely. Uh, whether it's through disillusionment or not really finding their home uh, at the end of mm. the day, because a lot of in the conversations that you and I have had is you're, you're a very straightforward person. Like you, you, you tell it as it is your, your slides were probably as progressive and straightforward as they could be uh, your webinars. When we were discussing, you just present the information to these individuals and you say, okay, let's go. Uh, you're a very practical person that way. The practical part of this is, is that part of this new model that you're developing now in, in, in universities, because actually, before you even answer that question, let's, let's talk about that model, that education mm -hmm. model that, that you're working towards right now with the different countries. You've been working in the Maldives and where, whereabouts else have you been working? Uh, uh, Mongolia. Mongolia, that's correct. Mm -hmm. So in these countries, you're working with their health ministers in order to develop programs but the thing that I really like the most is that you're working within the, the, the purview of what's already existing. You're not looking to go in, push everything aside and say that doesn't work because that wouldn't work anyways. You're, you're actually <laughs> developing within, which I think is a brilliant idea. Tell, tell me a little bit about that process, what you're hoping to do with this, what kind of changes are you implementing and what kind of changes have you seen be implemented since you've started working on this education process? So I've been working, um, sort of working in a PhD that's sort of looking at comparing um, ambulance models um, in developing developing nations and how they integrate with their healthcare systems, and and the real question is about is the current models relevant to healthcare delivery today, and how does the emergency response work within that healthcare system? So you, you touched on a point that's really really relevant in relation to not just dumping what's there and, and telling them what to do. It's collaborating with them, listening to what they have and listening to where they would like to be and what can we do within the current system to enable them to get to where they want to be and get to where they want to be could be in two years, three years, five, eight, ten. Depends on the level that they wish to go to. For example, um, the way I ended up in the Maldives was um, whilst working with the university, we applied for a, a DFAT funding um, contract um, to help the Maldivian government enhance their pre-hospital healthcare delivery. Uh, so my team was fortunate enough to actually be awarded that contract. And what they wanted us to do was train the nurses with some better training and development uh, in a way which they could actually deliver ambulance related or paramedic type services outside the hospital. Because the way ambulance delivery worked over there is the nurse has a driver, they're given a basically equipped ambulance. And if they get a phone call to the hospital, they go out and retrieve. 
so in developing this education package for their Ministry of Health, uh, I took a wider view of what, or more strategic view of how their health system operated and listened to what they had to say, listened to the health minister and some of the deputy ministers, as well as a physician. Um, she trained in Cuba, I believe, uh, Maldivian that went over and did her medicine training there and listened to what that doctor had to say and where they would love to see things go and, and put forward a couple of ideas while we were doing this other training. And that sort of evolved into a bigger um, memorandum of understanding with them to help evolve and develop their national ambulance service. And realistically, the development was based around where they are and where they want to go and how can they implement the current services, add some ad adjuncts to it to make it work. It wasn't just me walking in with, hey, give me $20 million and I'll build you this service. That's that's not how working in these locations work. I mean, the moment you do that, if you try and plonk a Canadian system over there or an Australian system, there's all these other levels of backend support that people don't even consider as part of an emergency response system. And if you just dump that model right there and then in that location, then the moment you walk away, if all the other things aren't set up and established, that model will fall over within a month. Well, probably a bit longer than that, but you get the idea, like it this fall over. So looking at ways in, in which you can establish it. So even from introducing paramedics within the Maldives, they didn't have anything in their, in their law that allowed um, someone other than a nurse or a doctor or a couple of other allied health professions to be able to deliver medicines. So you could introduce EMTs or paramedics to that region, but that this be someone with a title and no ability to deliver healthcare. So the first step was helping them change the health law so that these, these levels could be recognized. And to do that, it was identifying what skills would be needed for someone to be an EMT or a PCP um, in Canadian terms, and what skills would be needed to be a paramedic or an advanced care paramedic. And it was providing all that information, pushing that up to the, the health minister, who then pushed it to the health council and getting these people added to the um, to health law for delivering these medications. And then it was, okay, what education do we need to implement so that we can um, start developing people in country and not having to bring in expats? Um, so that was working with their polytechnic colleges to develop that aspect and then working with their university to look at ways that we could train paramedics um, that would be quicker than coming through the college pathway. So looking at a nurse conversion program, looking at, um, they have something else there that's between an, a registered nurse and a doctor, it's a special health practitioner role. So looking at ways you could convert them into a pure paramedic type role or community paramedic role um, and that type of stuff. But the other thing that really blew me away in that location was that they've got uh, 26 different atolls and that's 26 different 911 numbers. So no one calls like a centralized number, they call the hospital. So if you're on a different atoll, you've got a, that's a different number you've got to call for an ambulance. So the next part was to create a centralized, um, I know that sounds really simple, but the next part was to create that centralized emergency number. And I met someone by accident that works with the emergency um, dispatch college. Um, and he was able to come in and really help evolve that because that really wasn't my specialty. And that's one thing I've done is bring other specialists in if I don't have an understanding of the request. Because I mean, I've got a very niche field, but emergency response is massive. So I'm not going to pretend to do something I know nothing about. I'll bring a specialist in that I can help them if they need it, but they can deliver the key parts for that. Um, and the process was, yeah, bring that in. And they trialed it pre-COVID. 
so I haven't been since COVID, obviously, um, but they trialed it in a small area. And then they're, once they got that right, then they were going to evolve it across all the other atolls as well. But I mean, that's just a brief snapshot of, of that kind of development. And I think the evolution of where they were going was quite timely because they were also introducing their own medical school and in the uh, National University there. So they were going to incorporate this development um, into that as well. So the, the timing and stuff was quite, um, was quite interesting. And yeah, it, it has started to evolve to where it is now. And I'd, I'd like to see um, where they're at. I'm hoping later this year we might be able to connect back up and, and see where it's gone um, across the different locations. But yeah, that's just the Maldivian example. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, we obviously know that not all systems are the same and there's so many no, variations just in healthcare alone. So to think that when you're walking through all of this, it makes so much sense. You're talking about education, you're talking about, you know, changing laws, introducing new laws, changing actual setups and systems and, and just having one unified phone number. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And, and to me, it sounds like you're doing it the right way. I think the the thing that's fascinating as well is that when you do take a look at some, like a different, say a country that's not as uh, developed maybe, or not as much, mm -hmm. not as much of an integrated <laughs> system as uh, somewhere like in, in Canada or the US, do you think it's easier to start with a country that is just at the cusp that you get these countries that are just now starting to get systems put in place so you can kind of teach them, I don't want to say the right way, but maybe a more updated way of doing things instead of going into a country like the US and saying, okay, these are some of the areas that we need to address. And it's it's like 52 different countries down there. I could only imagine that it working with them has got to be that much more difficult. So is there a preference in dealing with uh, an emerging country in their system or an established country? Having worked in very established systems, it does make my mind boggle at times um, how many different committees and processes you need to go through to implement something that's fairly, like you look at it go, that's just pure common sense. Here's the evidence that this works, this works and that works. Yes, we're going to improve this, this and this with that let's do it but then you've got to go through the committee that has to get another committee that has to get a third committee that gets a fifth committee to you know you know what i mean like it, it you, you just wonder why is this taking so long and 10 years later you might introduce it but the whole what they introduce is now 10 years behind what you proposed in the first place so you're playing that constant evolution or catch up uh what i have noticed working in these in these other countries particularly mongolia and and the maldives is that again we're not trying to um, say, hey, do this because, and we need money to do that. It's like, okay, here's here's what you'd like to do. Like they've told us what they would like to do. Here's the resources we have available. Here's um, how we'd like to evolve those researchers. How can we do that? And that's sort of the, the approach we've taken. What's interesting is things that might take you 10 steps and 4 million committees to get through in a more developed system, they generally happen a lot quicker. Um, sometimes that can be to a detriment because they haven't put some of the other processes in place to help support those roles. And other times it can be, um, it, it can make the transition a lot easier across the board. In Australia, we have something called SES, the State Emergency Service, uh, which go out and help with flood relief and, 
and um, cyclones and, and things like that. They're um, quite an amazing service and they've been very busy over the last sort of 18 months and two years with COVID and floods and fires and things like that. Really amazing people. Um, and you've got fire as well. So in Mongolia, they've got something called NEMA, which is a national emergency medical agency, and that's their fire service and what Australia has is SES. So I'm sure you've got some kind of state emergency type service that supports your natural disasters as well in Canada. So that's a combined, that's a combined group. So when uh, with some of the work we were doing there, we were looking at some of the aeromedical response, looking at what they currently have. It was supported by a non-government organization um, initially, and they didn't really have too much of a response within in-country with the actual country, because expensive to buy helicopters and air, fixed wing aircraft. With that, after that discussion, and we showed some presentations, and we worked with some of their doctors, and we with the Ministry of Health, we worked with the with the military um, in looking at ways to evolve their um, medical response in that space. And next thing we know, they've bought three helicopters. Wow! Like, I mean, to go, <laughs> to go through that that process over here would have taken forever. Um, yet they bought two, one dedicated EMS um, retrieval, a HEMS type helicopter, and the other same type, but it can be converted. So it could be used for other aspects. Um, and literally when COVID hit in February, 2020, when they started to lock everything down, we actually had a team from Mongolia here in Australia that we were taking them around and showing them different areas and aspects like that. And that's when they told us about the new helicopters. And our next trip was scheduled in April. And part of that was to evolve the training and start putting these helicopters in place so they could start responding. And I've seen pictures of them, but I've actually never physically touched them or been in them. Um, and I was really disappointed with that because like aviation is really my real love. Um, aviation and music, they sort of, they teeter with each other really. But yeah, so it's just a, just a simple example of how, how things can evolve quite quickly. I mean, another example was if we go over to the Maldives, uh, it's a very... Uh, very densely populated location, especially um, their capital, Mali, in that, uh, like to walk across the road, I'm not sure if you've ever been to any of the Asian countries where there's lots of motor motorbikes or scooters and things, like literally you step out into traffic, which is not something you do in, in Canada or Australia because you get run over, but you actually have to step out in traffic to cross the road because people don't stop. Um, and they drive around you, like, right, it's, it's just freaks you out. It really does. The first couple of times you do it, and then eventually you say, "Oh, that's right, that's right." I mean, you still got to be careful, but yeah, they literally ride it anyway. Oh. Um, how do you get an ambulance? How do you get a response in that capacity? And I remember we had motorcycles on the Gold Coast in Australia when I was an, a junior paramedic, uh, and I looked at what was being done elsewhere, and I suggested to the um, to the the assistant to the minister of health, I said, "What if we did a a scooter or motorcycle type response?" for your busy city areas so that you can get the paramedic to the patient. They can do their initial treatment and transport. And then we send one of the road ambulances to then go and pick the patient up if they need to go to hospital. So we designed a, a simple little emergency motorcycle response unit. Um, and that process actually got implemented. Um, so instead of having to fight through traffic, which you literally have to do, to get somewhere in those very tiny little streets, the motorcycle could just move through or the scooter, it was a pretty advanced looking scooter, um, could just move through the traffic, park where it has to park, get out with their bags, go upstairs or go into the shop and, and do their thing and then wait for the ambulance. So you're getting the treatment to the patient quicker. So yeah, it was just little things like that. It was like, well, this isn't really, I've seen this done elsewhere. How can I make that idea work here? Um, and we saw examples from, India, we saw examples from 
Israel. They've got an awesome, awesome process like that. And we looked at models in the US and Canada and the UK where they've actually got motorcycles still running. Granted, those bikes were a lot bigger compared to what we're looking at here, but how can we contextualize that model in? And that's what we did. We showed the examples from other areas and said, hey, this is what one could look like for here. And this is why we think it would work. And here's, here's the information, run with it as you want. And they ran with it really quick. Um, the private hospital over there, which leads the way in early adopting of things, they actually adopted that as, as well and it's been slowly pushed out from there. Um, but yeah, it's, how can we in, enhance what they currently have to provide a, um, a fuller service? And that's just examples of ways where we didn't say throw in lots of money, give us lots of money to do X, Y, Z. It was okay. Here's what you've got here. Here's how we can start to evolve it. Here, this is the steps that go in place and let's evolve as the healthcare system evolves. Let's not jump three or four steps ahead because then it's going to fall over. And that's, I think that's the whole concept of what I'm saying is it can provide um, growth opportunities that can be sustained to enhance the healthcare system. That's sort of my approach. Doing it the right way and getting that foundation put in place so that way it's not a house of cards that just falls apart, right? And you're yeah. you're talking about other countries like Israel. What what are some other countries out there? In North America, we're so isolated. We think that we think that everything <laughs> is the best, and and the people that don't, they just complain about it. But I don't see anybody here doing anything to change any of the circumstances because of the 400 committees that you have to go through in order to make any changes, like you had mentioned before. What are some of the other countries' models that you've looked at and said, you know, th this is a good model. Let's see if we can implement it over here. I is there a lot of interchange there with different countries? Well, it's interesting you should say that because they have been approached by a, a few others. I've been approached by Vietnam um, and we were looking at enhancing the Hanoi ambulance delivery service as well. Again, COVID put a grounding halt on that, um, but we got right the way up to complete evolutionary change with a lot of money involved in what the steps would be to move this forward and that was a whole of change and that was new communication that it was um, using tablets in their ambulances with electronic patient care records and um, gps routing systems and complete training changes to how they train their paramedics um new ambulances like it was huge it was a it was a, a big change but um that sort of got put on hold given the, the pandemic um another location has been papua new guinea um i've been we've been having discussions with them recently about sort of the models and changes and, and things that have applied particularly in uh, maldives because it's a similar sort of nurse response um process and there's a great ceo um it's working over there and he's looking at um collaborating with more people to help. How can you help enhance the delivery and the education model um, to the people there? And I mean, hats off to him for really leading that, that change over there because he's doing a great job. And Moldova, um, just next to Ukraine, we were approached by them a few years ago as well, looking at their system. And it's quite interesting when you look at the Mongolian system because it is very much a Russian-style doctor response the closer you get to the Russian border, the more um, sort of Russianized the medical delivery system is, as in um, instead of like pain relief medications that we have uh, that we would use here, they sort of go more down the muscle relaxant path and other directions and, and things like that. So it was quite interesting to see um, how, how they do things. Uh, and um, having 
worked quite close to the Russian border and, and worked with some of the um, hospitals and health systems in those um, areas. They're, they're called SOMS, but that's like your provinces over in, um, over in Canada. Working with them on, um, on how they deliver aspects was quite interesting. And I think I shared with you the early video um, from 2018 when we were there, and that was just working with those areas just to enhance the current delivery a little bit and look at ways in which they can grow. I actually ended up having to treat someone when I was there, uh, one of the people that was part of our group. And even um, the types of medications they have, I mean, who would have thought you'd use Google Translate to try and read what's in an ampule? Um, thank goodness there was a translator there to uh, be able to hear, what's in this ampule? What's this one? This looks like it should be such and such. Oh, that's not the one I want. I want this one. And you go, oh, here it is. And so, that, I mean, doing medicine in a foreign language is, is quite an interesting quite an interesting approach. Um, but then, for example, and they only had two ampules of morphine and that was, I needed that to last for, um, when I found out there was only two, I needed that to last for a two and a half hour road trip um, for this particular patient because it was in the middle of the night, absolute black as black can be. So no helicopter um, or aircraft are coming anywhere to get this patient. Really, they should have been flown. So they said, oh no, that's all we've had. We won't get any for another week. And like, just, just um, oh, well, we use this medication for that. And they go, well, that's not going to work for this particular patient. Um, and so you just, just little things like that and, and looking at how could they change that approach and, and why, and then working with their doctors over there and the people that lead the healthcare system and bringing in other experts as well. Because again, I don't claim to be an expert in emergency room development setup or delivery and connecting them with the people that are like that. Um, so that they can take, I can, I can help with the development of the, the pre-hospital setup and then you can pass the next part over to someone else that can help with the emergency room setup. And just it, everyone does their own specialty, but all working together for the same cause and it worked quite well. But yeah, it's, um, it's interesting seeing how these systems work and, and, and just finding some of the little gaps that they might have that you can quickly cover up with a very simple change to process and explain why and then seeing how that improves. And it was interesting, um, I did see, after we were there in 18, I did see a video of, it was a crash on a world rally. Um, it's one of these rallies that starts in Europe somewhere and goes through the the sand, the deserts of Mongolia and all east and then goes down through China. It was that one of those rallies. And it was a crash between one of the support vehicles and the um, one of the rally cars. And it was interesting to see a group that we had done this training with actually respond and see all the equipment that we gave them actually on this news article and then doing the very things that we trained them to do that previously wasn't part of their practice. And then the big um, Mil-8 helicopter came in and I'm not sure if you've ever seen a Russian Mil-8 troop transport helicopter. It's absolutely massive. And this seeing everyone cover over the patient because when this helicopter lands, the downforce and the spray of dust is just astronomical. Like if, if you're standing, it'll knock you over. Like if the, the downwash is, am is amazing. And just seeing them sort of do the response like we described to protect the patient, protect the area, and then transport these patients away. It was like, it was really, it was really interesting um, to see what you're taught being put in action. And you haven't really changed the system, but you've enhanced aspects of the delivery. Because um, to do the sort of things we're looking at in Mongolia, for example, um, it's a doctor, a physician's response, but not only is it a physician's response, they graduate out of med school and then they're put in an ambulance 
and then off you go and go to a pre-hospital response. Now, doctors are amazing people, um, amazing medical practitioners, but you've gone from teaching someone how to deliver medicine in a hospital environment where the nurse, the assistant, um, the senior doctor, they can all just do things um, in a nice, closed, unique, safe environment to an extent. Um, and everything's around you To Now they're on their own. They're not in a hospital and they're delivering medicine, mainly primary care type medicine. And they're Johnny on the spot without any help or assistance. So um, the aspect of what we did there was providing some pre-hospital care contextualization to their knowledge because they're already very smart people. So we don't need to teach them how to suck eggs or anything like that. It's like, okay, you know about abdominal pain um, and, or you know about chest pain or, or something like that. So here's how you would actually manage that if you're outside the hospital. There's like little light bulbs turning on everywhere and they go, oh, we never thought of looking at it from that perspective because they were trying to manage it in a hospital, but they weren't in a hospital. So little things like that. So that was one aspect of this sort of changing the, the, the clinical um, thought process, so to speak. And then looking at ways in which we can enhance these new people when they come out from university. The drivers, the, the way that they can get around inside these little cities and things, it just blows my mind because I've done a few ride-alongs and I'd be lost. Um, I mean, they get lost just walking around the city, let alone going into like all these little portable huts and things like that. But they literally just, they lift heavy things and they drive the car. That's pretty much their job. But what if we could provide the drivers with some basic understanding of just BLS, like basic life support, basic wound management or stop the bleed, little things like that. Then suddenly, instead of having one pair of hands, being the doctor doing everything, now the doctor's got an extra pair of hands that can help with simple things. So um, getting them to orientate on the equipment, not, not training them to be um, paramedics, but giving them that extra pair of hands. But the Ministry of Health there did want to introduce a more paramedical type system of ambulance response to sort of put the doctors back in the hospital. So how do we do that? So we sort of, well, let's train up the drivers. And then our next phase would be, let's train those drivers that want to do more training into sort of that EMT type role. And then those EMTs that want to go further, let's train them to paramedics. And then you slowly bring the model in. And what about the doctors that are currently in the middle of all that model? Well, some of them might want to be um, pre-hospital care um, specialists. Some of them might want to end up on the hospital, uh, on the helicopter, sorry. Some of them might want to end up on the planes. Some of them might want to be the transfer specialist. Like there's, there's different ways in which we can contextualise their ability with that as well. Because, I mean, it's going to take a long time to go from first aid trained EMR type driver to paramedic. I mean, we're talking five, 10 years. Um, so we still need to enhance um, that physician-led model as well. And that's sort of the um, that's sort of the plan. And then with that, it's not just Ambulance isn't just one section. They've got ambulance with the military. So the military hospital has an ambulance response. So it's working with them in that space. And then the Neymar group that I spoke about before, they have a hospital, they have an ambulance response. So it's working with that group as well. So with Neymar, they, uh, road trauma is a huge thing over there. And as I bought the, uh, they asked about enhancements to their delivery and road trauma and, and fire and stuff like that. And I said, well, I'm no expert in fire. I have no idea what happens when it gets to negative 40 because if it gets anything below negative 15 in Australia, people just panic like the world, the hell's freezing over. So I don't know what really, really cold was through my university work. I'd met a gentleman by the name of Joe Acker, who's now used to work for British Columbia and Ambulance Service as their 
um, director for um, clinical and professional development. Before that, he was director of um, patient care delivery of Vancouver. Um, he's now CEO of Ambulance Tasmania. And he introduced me to a good friend of his from Alberta, who used to be chief of Vancouver Fire and Rescue, Daryl Reed, and said, Daryl is your man to help you um, in this fire space. He knows what happens with, with temperatures below 40. He's from Northern Alberta. That's just a normal daily temperature. And I went, good, <laughs> I need someone that's used to that kind of weather. And so in comes Daryl to the project and Daryl's an amazing communicator. His, his education, the way he educated was amazing. He was the leader, I think of, I'll probably get this wrong, so I apologize in advance, um, but he led the Canadian, I think he was Canadian Task Force One, which is based out of BC. Um, and I apologize if it's Task Force Two. Um, <laughs> so, but yes, he, he, was, he was in charge um, of that based out of BC. Um, he's now Chief Commissioner in Alberta, um, Strathcorn County, I think it is. So that's where his family was based. But um, he was able to sort of bring his knowledge about earthquake response and stuff like that, that the train there, because that's, that's the type of stuff that Neymar responds to as well. But with, with the traffic response, because fire always gets dispatched to these crashes before the ambulance does, because remember there's limited ambulances. And what would happen is that the, and Daryl commented on this as well, is that for a car accident, these firefighters in Mongolia, they can secure the car as good as anyone in a developed nation. Like they're, they're fight, they're, that type of road crash rescue was absolutely amazing. But when it came to the patient management part, well, it's literally, I'll just cross my arms. Right? They waited until, so we sort of, well, how can we enhance that? So the, the driver or EMR um, kind of approach we're going to take for the ambulance is, well, what if we applied that skill set to the uh, NEMA firefighters as well? So instead of having one pair of doctor hands, now you've got the doctor plus five more pairs of hands that can help as well. Um, and we can do things like simple things with BLS, like they can secure the C-spine if there's a catastrophic or major hemorrhage, they can stop the hemorrhage. They can keep the patient warm. But we're talking really basic life support, really simple things that can make a difference. Because when we were looking at the stats and the data of these, these crashes, people were dying because of simple techniques just not being done. Yet we had five or six people that would be on scene that actually have the ability to provide that, but they've never been trained. So incorporating that kind of training to help lower those, those numbers and, and other aspects like that. And it was amazing how quickly they took it on um, and how well they performed it. And you put it down to their discipline and, and other aspects like that. But um, a simple, simple minor tweak to the way that um, that response, again, we're not trying to turn them into a paramedic response. It's merely just giving them some basic skills that can make a difference to um, someone's life when they respond and get in there and potentially enhance the quality of life instead of either giving them a lower level or at worst, the patient dies because nothing's done. So yeah, little things like that had made a really big difference. Um, and yeah, we, when we went in, we did think we'd probably be going to a, a different level of firefighting, but we were the way Daryl described the, the equipment, the way that they use it, he was blown away because um, he thought he'd have to do a lot of that kind of development, but they were using stuff that's used here or used in Australia, that's used in Canada and their methods for doing it were top notch. So um, really the change of focus was he was big on the peer support and reaching out and that's something that doesn't happen there. So he, he drove that um, and then we could sort of, Joe and myself, help drive the the skills, the clinical skills type of stuff. Daryl's also a paramedic and advanced care paramedic as well. So he could assist um, in that space too, but he did warn us he hadn't 
ACP for a while. So he, he said that Joe and I will be better at doing that. But yeah, just, it was amazing that just having the three of us sort of come together in, in three different fields, but really bring everything in as one. And again, just these little changes in the pre-hospital response with the fire, with the ambulance, makes a big difference to the patient care delivery in that country. And again, that's not us going in with millions of dollars. Hey, we're going to stop everything and do it this way. This is, well, what's current, it comes back to what's currently there. What can we do that's low to no cost to enhance um, the response capability? And that I think that's the whole concept of where I'm sort of going with, with my PhD research in that space is looking at those areas, finding the gaps and then coming up with ways in which you can work with them to enhance them. Don't get me wrong, sometimes money is needed to fix certain things and implement new systems. However, it's it's not the be all and end all of, of fixing the problem. Sometimes there's a lot of stuff that can be done in-house with either minimal training or advanced training or train the trainers who can then go back and deliver it. Um, so you've got a small cost in training your trainers and then the trainers go back out to their organisation. And that's how we've done the initial training to start with. So when we finally go back, it'll be interesting to see how that has evolved um, while we've been locked out with, uh, with COVID. Breaking down the silos. That was a direct mm-hmm. quote from you when we first <laughs> talked. And that's exactly yep. what you're talking about. You're just breaking down the silos because not only are you not looking to just dismantle anything that's been put in place in some of these countries or cities, provinces, any anything like that, but you're also you're learning what is important to them. You know, mm-hmm. if, if car accidents are, are a major component of what a certain area suffers from, then you have to kind of specialize the program to address their needs. You also mentioned traffic, right? Here in, in Canada, <laughs> we have the ability to move around a little bit, right? We have, mm. you know, bigger highways. The states have a bunch of highways. But if you get into a country that doesn't have that same setup in their infrastructure, then you have to approach it differently. So not only Very are much. you breaking down the silos of getting rid of these egos, which is always at the center of of these conversations, it seems it's just ego, ego, (laughs) ego, but it's also getting in there. So that way you can break down your own perception of the silo that you have for this country or for this area of the world, which I think is pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable. It's a type of what you're saying. One of the things that's jumping out to me that I want to touch on is money. You've mentioned Mm -hmm. it a couple of times, obviously money isn't the answer to everything, but it, it does, you know, make things work. As you're talking about this, bringing the hospital to the patients, this paramedicine that you're looking to develop even more, I can't help but think one of the things that we complain about here in Canada a lot of the, a lot of the times is going to the hospital and utilizing the hospital as it's your primary caregiver or going to the hospital unnecessarily and creating that backlog, causing the province and you know a, a mm-hmm. ton of money. This work that you're doing in, in, in paramedicine and bringing the hospital to the patient, how, how much does that alleviate the hospital itself? Interesting. Interesting. You sort of mentioned that in that um, if I sort of mention um, about um, someone actually from your, your province, um, he's now working over in British Columbia. He was the former chief of Niagara EMS. Now um, his name's Kevin Smith. And he championed a transition, a transformational transition to the Niagara region. Um, They've won multiple um, awards and accolades for what they did, basically rewriting um, how they respond to incidents and and putting in place that sort of right care, right time, right place, right provider 
and there's some really cool infographics um, that are available um, on the Niagara EMS website that show you um, how all this comes together. But basically it's like 911 number rings and then it's triage in that, okay, is this a lights and sirens emergency? Okay, cool. Well, we're sending an ambulance, okay? Um, is this not a lights and sirens emergency? Well, then it sort of deviates down to another spot where it's, they sort of triage the call even further and then they identify, okay, could this be a mental health response? Could this be a falls response? Could this be a community paramedic response? It doesn't require lights and sirens. Could it be some other kind of primary healthcare response? And they've got these mobile integrated health teams that go out and deliver. And what you're saying there in, is exactly that in that not all those patients will then end up having to come into the hospital system to actually make that the primary healthcare hub because of some of that a lot of that primary healthcare can actually be incorporated on scene or alternate pathway in another direction. And he did this work um, for its, this transformational change has occurred over a 10 or so year period. And the difference it's made, um, and I know we had a few conversations with each other um, and he says, yes, where uh, other areas within the province sort of give us that look whenever we win another award and, and they're always trying to beat us. And so, I mean, the work he's done there is absolutely amazing. So definitely, like I'm just a very tiny little fish in an absolute massive pond of transformational change in this space. But if all of these little fishes start to make all these little changes and, and implementations across the board, it starts to come up to quite a big change process. And we're all just trying to do our little bit to try and make it a little bit better in the different areas they're going to now. Um, and I think BC stole Kevin. Um, I think he's, he's now there. Um, Chief Systems and Strategy Officer um, over in BC EHS. So that's only recently that change has occurred. So yes, they've stolen him from Niagara um, and now he's gone to the other side of Canada. Two Damn very BC. beautiful locations. Yeah, two very <laughs> beautiful locations, I must admit. I mean, that Niagara on the lake and, and um, Niagara Falls and all the beautiful sort of country areas of BC and Vancouver. I mean, that's pretty special, I must admit. High country BC is pretty amazing. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, um, really looking forward, actually, to seeing how he can implement the knowledge and skills that he put into the Niagara area into such a big provincial-run service. Um, I think do some amazing things there to really just help push forward that transformational change in that process. So really looking forward to catching up with him in about six or so months as he starts to, I'm sure he'll present at various conferences and things, um, talking about that kind of um, development that he's currently going through uh, but yeah an example of just another person in in the field that's doing these things and again like we're not alone we're all doing these little things um, and it's amazing all these little things that eventually start to add up but going back to money is one thing that does seem to be a real big key thing that's mentioned in all of these conferences around the world that i've been to and reading papers the biggest frustration, particularly the community paramedicine or mobile integrated health model, is that you get funding to run a trial and the trial shows tremendous results. It connects people back with the healthcare system. Uh, for example, my auntie over in Guelph, they had one of the trials done in their high density living area. And funny enough, the person presenting on that trial was actually presenting after my presentation at the same conference. Uh, Arnie Diane was actually watching it and went, oh, that's, that, I was in that. It was small world, like small, very small world. And like they have these amazing trials that bring out this amazing statistics. 
it proves it does, like you said, make better options for their healthcare delivery. It stops tying up hospitals. It connects people back with healthcare providers, all this type of stuff. But then after the trial's done, the funding's gone, that type of delivery stops and you go back to old school way of doing it. And it's not just limited to Canada. It's the same in the UK and the same in Australia. Like these great models are there, but sometimes the funding's not available because the funding's still stuck in that traditional old school way of delivery and that someone calls 911 or triple zero over here and the ambulance goes and we deliver and then we generally just bring them back and i think the enhancement or the inclusion really and that's where this sort of research sort of that i'm sort of doing it's sort of a bit twofold one it's the overall i believe that the old the two models that exist ambulance models which is franco-german which is physician-led and anglo-american which is the traditional sort of service we have in our countries i believe those models are sort of on the edge, the dying edge of, of healthcare delivery, and that maybe um, a new model needs to be developed, but is it a hybrid of that? Or is it one that purely contextualizes the delivery based on the healthcare system needs? And that could mean maybe it is Frank, maybe the Franco-German style is the way for that particular country at that present time or that particular location. Or maybe it's a little bit of the Anglo-American, a little bit of the Franco-German, community paramedicine or mobile integrated healthway pathways all merged into it as well. Maybe that's the best, the best way to deliver. I don't know. That's what research is all about. Um, but given what we're seeing now with hospital wait times, ramping, delays in getting responses out to people when they call 911 or triple zero in my country, there has to be a better way. Um, I could throw a hundred ambulances in the area where I work in at the moment on road, spread that out across the area where I work. But at the end of the day, if there's a blockage at the other end, where do all those patients go? It might make all my response time suddenly disappear, but then if I've got nowhere to deliver them or nowhere to take them because there's a delay at that end, then how does that actually resolve the problem? Um, so I, I, I don't think throwing more people out to respond is the answer. It is to some extent. Maybe we need to look at these alternate pathways. Maybe we need to look at these other mobile integrated healthcare models or community paramedic models, depending on who you talk to, they it's interchangeable, the acronyms. Um, but maybe we need to start looking at looking back at some of these projects or some of these trials that have gone out and go, actually, they're onto something. Maybe we need to start doing it that way. Because if we keep doing it the way we're doing it, the problems are only going to get worse. Um, you can only put a Band-Aid on so many times before it falls off. That, I think, is the next evolution of pre-hospital care is is the real collaboration and holistic approach being looked at as actually this is the new norm. This is the next evolutional change to make this work. There will always be a place for emergency response. There's always going to be car accidents. People are always going to have heart attacks or respiratory problems. That's always going to exist. But it's now the expectation of this primary healthcare um, chronic condition response. It's now becoming a core part of ambulance response that needs some serious attention. We're living longer, we're looking after ourselves better. Medicine has evolved, but with that comes new challenges of now managing people in that space as well. And like I said, not everyone has to go to hospital. Hospital's not necessarily the right place. Um, let's reconnect people in the community with their local primary healthcare centers, their local doctors, their GPs. Um, or let's look at other models for the less fortunate, which is that the community paramedicine model is great where paramedics or paramedics with, with nursing or doctors can go out and 
he is a um, a youth centre where you can all come in and have a free checkup. We can check your medications, we can check your vitals. Maybe we might identify something you didn't know you have, and we could change your potential future activities of daily living as a result of that. Like you might end up with a better quality of life because you came and saw the community paramedic that was in the um, local um, sports centre doing free health checks, and we can direct you to to the um, community doctor that can help alleviate that problem. I mean, Saskatoon um, has got this great bus that um, it's a community paramedic bus. It goes out to various areas around there um, and does exactly that. And you name it, it's it's in there and it goes out to a lot of the Indigenous areas as well. Um, and it delivers healthcare to areas where healthcare is either a long way away or comes in occasionally. There's plenty of examples, if we looked for it, of where someone's coming into one of these pop-up mobile health clinics or regular and they've changed potentially changed someone's life it's even it comes down to those frequent callers by examining why the frequent caller calls all the time i mean is it are they lonely is it medication is it lack of understanding of the healthcare system um, and then seeing those frequent caller numbers go from 30 times a month to 15 to 10 to 1 to only calling in an emergency like, like because they've been given that that journey, some navigation throughout not only the healthcare system, but their health literacy. Because sometimes a lot of this is related to not having any health literacy and providing that. And that's, that comes back to our communication point we touched on earlier at the start of the interview is it's, it's creating those conversations. Um, it's creating that connection with your patients. So yeah, it's um, changes afoot. Hopefully we can start to, uh, with all the little fishes all swimming together and starting to push up, hopefully. Kind of like that scene in Finding Nemo where, uh, where they get caught in the shark net and they get everyone to, to swim down to sort of break the net. Um, maybe we can come together as a whole bunch of little fishies to swim down and, and break that net and let the transformational change take place that could ultimately bring um, a complete change to the way in which we sort of deliver paramedicine across the world. Duncan, I mean... You've said it perfectly. Uh, all, all of what you, you're talking about here sounds tremendous to me, not just the fact that you're working on it and that you actually care and the fact that you fell into this field by accident or by happenstance, fate, whatever you want to call it. I'm personally glad that this quote unquote little fish is working with other little fish because I don't think you guys are little anymore. You're, you're affecting change in places. And uh, I would, I would love to touch base with you again, after you've been able to revisit some of these systems that you've had a chance to work with and, and get an update on, on what's going on here, because you guys are, are doing this. You, you, you're out there, you're, you're making change. And I think that you're doing, I feel you're doing it the right way. You're bringing a holistic approach. You're bringing in professionals in different fields you're trying to break down the egos. You're trying to break down those silos of, of communication and, and try to find better ways to deliver and help people live. I, I, to that, I say thank you, sir. So keep up the good work. I, I want to leave it there because I think that that was sure. a, a lot of great information that people can kind of chew on a little bit. And this is one of those ones that I think people will want to listen to a couple of times because there's a lot of great information in there. So Thank you again. I, I, I guess I'm assuming that you sleep three hours a day. Is, is that <laughs> with all the stuff that you have going on? Well, my sister has quoted, has quoted a few times that what, what is he doing now? Like I can't keep up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he said, you can't, can't keep your feet still. 
So yeah, my kids managed to come with me on our trip in 2019 to Canada because I'd done a lot of work um, around the world for the last three years and I'd never really taken any of them with me because I really couldn't. And there was an opportunity to go to PEI and my wife was a mad Anna Green Gables fan. So she said, there's no way you're going to a conference of PEI without me coming along. <laughs> um, so we literally went from one side of Canada to the other. So we made the big holiday in the end. I think they were taken back by just what my work actually did and and how that sort of works in, in the bigger field. Granted, it was probably because they saw me writing my presentations last minute because um, that's just sort of how I did it. Um, one of them was written on the plane. The other one was written in the hotel. Um, and that just did my wife's head in. Going, how can you do that? I said, well, it's, it's here. It's, it's all in my head. I just won't take me long to spit it all out. on. It's just, that's not how it works. So, well, that's how I work. Sorry, that's just me. Yeah, it was it was good to actually share some of those experiences um, with them because yeah, granted some of the locations I go to, it's just not appropriate to take anyone but myself. But yeah, it was good to sort of have some of those shared experiences. And who knows, maybe one day um, I might end up over in the Great White North and um, working in um, in in one of those locations there, um, doing what I'm doing there and helping implement change in that process. Because um, yeah, we've we've I've had a love for Canada for ever since I was little. You can ask my parents that. So yeah, it, um, it wouldn't take much for me to um, relocate over there, I don't think. I mean, speaking for all of Canada, which I've definitely got a right to do, you're more than welcome. I mean, you're, <laughs> you, you have, you're a wealth of knowledge, uh, but not only that, Duncan, I really get the feeling that you actually care, which is something that I don't think a lot of people get sometimes when they're dealing with mm. individuals who are stretched, stretched thin or stressed out in their circumstances and in, in the health fields. It's, it's not an easy job, but, you know, there's, there's hope out there that people like yourself and the people that you're working with are actually striving towards bigger things and, and change. And, and I think it's, it's definitely needed. Yeah, it's not just money. It's not just numbers. People do make a difference. And you're right. I don't say that as a cliche. Your staff really do make a difference. Advocating for them, being there for them. I mean, it may to sometimes to them, it may not look like you're doing much. Um, kind of that swan analogy where they look all very perfect and pretty sitting, sitting up floating on the water, but their legs are going like a million miles an hour. So it, it's, it's kind of that analogy of where if you see the um, bomb tech running, you should probably keep up with them because something's gone terribly wrong. Whereas if it's a really intense situation, you can have the little swan legs running in your head, but you've got to have that sort of perception to your face. Oh yeah, this is all fine. And you're just working through and working through. Because if you're panicking, everyone else around you is panicking as well. So I think that's sort of a key part of leadership is sort of, you might be sort of swinging 100 miles an hour with your little swan legs, but to lead your team through that, you've got to look like you're, uh, you're in complete control and that everything's going just the way you hope it. Um, but I think where paramedics are very different to other healthcare professionals is because we're in such an uncontrolled work environment, probably comes back to that sort of aviation. I love for aviation as well. Because you're in such an uncontrolled work environment, when things go wrong, they go wrong pretty spectacularly. And you've got to make split second decisions and react to, to fix things. Otherwise, the outcomes are quite catastrophic. So I guess that's why when things go crazy and, and out of control, you say, well, we'll just continue doing our thing and we'll continue doing what needs to be done to, to make it all work. Um, and I think that's why we, we work quite well in these um, disaster situations and emergency response situations, because yes, the world can be crazy and running around around us, but it doesn't mean that um, we, yeah, because being running around like a headless chook isn't going to help you resolve the problem any quicker. So 
Um, it's interesting when you do have those feedback sessions with people afterwards and they're going, oh, everyone was running around like a headless chalk and, oh, this was crazy and that was happening and all that was happening. You're just standing there and you're just doing this and we're getting this done. And I said, well, how would it have looked if I'd been running around like everyone else on scene? Do you think we would have been able to achieve the outcomes we achieved? And they went, no, I didn't think of it like that. I said, trust me. I was like, and you use that, that swan analogy. I said, my little legs were kicking 100 miles an hour underneath the water. You just couldn't see it. But and yeah, it's like I said, it's it's fun. And thankfully not, because you're right. Mm. If if the if the train professionals are running around uh, losing it, then I'm 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 just gonna st- sit there and stay still because there's no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Duncan, yeah, again, man, thank you very much uh, for sitting down with me and and sharing all this amazing information and and best of luck with all the stuff that you're doing. And and like I said, I would love to sit down again, uh, whenever you want, reach out, let me know, say, Hey, Chris, there's something new in the developments. Cause I would love to get an update on some of this stuff. Yeah, no, cool. And vice versa. If you haven't heard for a little bit, cause time happens really quickly in this space. And before you know it, six months, 12 months is gone. Oh, where'd that go? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I definitely will. My friend. Well, thank you. Uh, you'll probably have a shift starting in a couple of minutes. So I'm going to let you go. So that way you can, you can get yourself ready for your shift. Okay, Duncan, again, thank you very much, my friend. Thank you. Have a great day. Cool. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.